Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Wise. Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio. My name is Tim Grady. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Wise, and we have a very interesting show for you today and two expert guests talking on two very different subjects. We have Jim Wall, who's Executive Director of NIMS. That is the National Institute for um, Metalworking Skills. He's talking about the 52 distinct NIMS skill certifications that uh, schools all across the country use to certify people in things like stamping, metal stamping, press break, roll forming, laser cutting, machining. So if you're looking for a, a training program internally and you need some standards to measure your students by, I suggest you get a hold of NIMS and we'll be talking with Jim in a bit. He's followed by Russ Green, who's Executive Vice President and Partner with Godfrey, a B2B marketing communications firm. And you might want to check out Godfrey.com. Uh, they're more affordable than one would think, do some great marketing and communications work for manufacturers. So those are our two guests. Just stay tuned for Russ. He comes up at the end of the show. And let me take a minute to talk with Lou Weiss, who has our postscript and news for us. Lou, you're up. Um, how do you do? Yeah. Um, how was how your Thanksgiving in Georgia? Thanksgiving was wonderful. We had a great time. I'm not sure we got enough accomplished over the holiday, but we just have to get caught up this week. Well, I got nothing done other than having an enjoyable weekend. So here we are. Uh, let's talk about uh, our postscript from last week. Uh, we had Peter Endlin, Senior Vice President of Global Product Marketing from uh, Decentral. That's D-I-C-E-N-T-R-A-L. And they talk about the the new and the old technology of EDI, which has been around probably for 30, 40 years, maybe longer. And uh, they're showing how to use EDI in a new and more sophisticated way. Uh, I suggest that you listen to it because it's something that uh, – is going to become more prevalent, and you're going to hear more people talking about it in the not-too-distant future. Uh, our second guest uh, last week was uh, Patrick Ryan from Huntington Ingalls Industry, the, the division of Newport News Shipbuilding. And uh, he's an en engineering uh, manager. Uh, he spoke about augmented reality, and I'm not going to tell you what it's about, it's similar to virtual reality, but totally different. So I suggest you listen to this uh, technology, which also has been around for a little bit. Um, but uh, Patrick Ryan has been in this now for about six years uh, at Newport News, and we all know what, who and what they are. Um, interesting stuff. If you want to figure out how they weigh a battleship, tune in and listen to this show. Uh, <laughs> Uh, a couple of news items, not very manufacturing news-oriented, but uh, I thought interesting nonetheless, um, being that this is um, Cyber Monday and our computers are working slower because everybody's out spending money on buying uh, more electronic uh, gadgetry. Uh, but something major did happen. The WTO, World Trade Organization, Boeing was offered illegal tax breaks. 
and that's been a battle between Boeing and um, Airbus now for about eight years, and according to today's report, Boeing lost. We have to figure out at some point what that means, but all of you who are involved with Boeing, you might want to uh, do some research on this and uh, see how it may wind up affecting you. Serious stuff. Uh, this is kind of a humorous one. Gas prices for the Thanksgiving weekend in this country, second lowest in eight years, except, as one famous economist would tell us, except in New Jersey. Our taxes went up 23 cents a gallon. How about that for Thanksgiving? Uh, I think that's about it as far as uh, anything new that's really worthwhile today. Uh, everybody's either here or still taking the weekend off or slowing down our computers. So uh, I'm going to flip this back to you, Tim. Thanks, Lou. Uh, and stay tuned for next week's show, by the way. Tune into that because we have Brad Holcomb, who is the committee chair for the Manufacturing Report on Business, and the latest uh, Purchasing Managers Index, the PMI number, will be coming out uh, next Tuesday on our show. So tune in and listen to that. We expect it to bump up a bit. Followed by Chris Keel, who is an economist with Armada Corporate Intelligence, and he is also the economist with the FMA International. He always has very interesting and humorous things to say. Tune in for next week's show, and now let's get to our guests. We're here with Jim Wall, who's the executive director of NIMS, which happens to be the National Institute for Metalworking Skills. This is a very interesting organization that was formed back in 1994 by the Metalworking Trade Association to develop and maintain a globally competitive workforce. They do, uh, what they do is set skill standards for the industry, certifies individuals skills against those standards, and then accredits you know, training programs to meet the NIMS quality requirements. Great program, Jim, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, I appreciate being on. And, and I'm gonna let you go back over what I just went over because you'll do a better job of explaining to our listeners what NIMS does and how it came to be. Right. Well, NIMS was formed by a consortium of, of some of the major trade associations that represent precision manufacturing in the United States um, with the, the goal of uh, helping ensure we have a globally competitive uh, workforce. And we do that by convening industry experts uh, from around the country to develop skill standards. And those standards are documents that clearly explain what it is industry needs uh, individuals to know and more importantly be able to do in various job functions um, in the manufacturing arena. And those uh, standards then are the basis for our certification program which is designed to certify individual skills uh, against the standard. And uh, the, the combination of the national industry standard and the industry-recognized credential allows for training providers, uh, and whether that be you know high school programs, community and technical college programs, uh, company-based training programs, apprenticeship programs, all to uh, have a... Um, uh, the bar set by the industry in terms of the, what what is needed in their in their curriculum. So um, we don't tell people how to train, but really just uh, 
convene the industry to say these are the skills that are really important and, and this is what you need to measure in your, in your training programs. And let me just go over with you for a minute, Jim. What kind of organizations do you work with in terms of their training people to meet your standards? We work with a whole range of organizations in both the public and, and private sector. Um, you know, in the public sector, we do a significant amount of work with, with high school programs, um, the career and technical or vocational programs. Um, at the, the post-secondary level, we work an awful lot with community and technical colleges, and uh, um, we also work with individual companies, individ uh, nonprofit organizations that are doing training, um, industry associations that many times are doing training and education activities, and, and also with individual companies or groups of companies in, in locations all, all across the country. So you're working with a lot of folks. As a matter of fact, you and I spoke just before the show about one of the organizations that you work with. And they're an organization that's near and dear to our hearts. It happens to be Workshops for Warriors uh, that is headed up by Renan Luis Prado. We've had Renan on the show several times. Give us an idea of what they're doing over at Workshops for Warriors and how your uh, certifications apply to what they're doing and how it helps. Well, they've got a you know a fantastic training program where they're they're uh, have a, a really a fast track uh, training program. So in a very sh short period of time, they uh, get individuals um, who are many times veterans and, and many times disabled veterans uh, the skills that are in demand in uh, manufacturing. So uh, they incorporate a number of our, our credentials and, and their individuals who, who leave their training program typically will have four or five NIMS credentials anywhere from you know CNC operator certification to CNC programming setup and uh, uh, operation credentials. Um, uh, just a whole gamut of, of, of credentials that allow them to better communicate their skills and verify their skills to potential employers. So it's a it's a really good program that we support wholeheartedly. Uh, Jim, in one of our conversations uh, about a couple of days ago or so, you were talking about a government contract that you had just received. Uh, to help improve manufacturing and metal metalworking uh, education, can you give us a little insight into that, uh, just to show how our government is actually trying to do some good? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we we were uh, just awarded a contract um, uh, to uh, help the Department of Labor expand apprenticeships in manufacturing occupations across the country and. Uh, um, in our, our role as a, as a contractor really representing the Department of Labor, uh, we're doing an awful lot of outreach to uh, companies across the country to really open their eyes about the, the new types of apprenticeship programs that are available. And, uh, you know, historically, one of the problems has, with apprenticeships has been that it, it's been a Department of Labor-driven initiative and, and companies had to uh, have someone from the Department of Labor come visit their their facility and, and register their program. And for for many companies, that's the last thing they wanted was someone from the Department of Labor coming uh, for a visit. <laughs> and, and as a result, uh, you know, a, a lot of companies that, that wanted to 
do apprenticeship decided not to because they just didn't want to deal with the government. So there's there's been a major shift in terms of uh, apprenticeship and, and the role of the Department of Labor, and we're really excited about it. Um, one of the emphasis areas that we're working on is that now um, an intermediary organization, uh, whether it's a trade association, a local trade association, or a community and technical college, uh, for example, can can register the apprenticeship programs and just have companies sign up with them, and really never have to touch the government in, in terms of having a registered apprenticeship program. And we think that's huge in terms of taking one of the major barriers that prevented companies from participating in in a national apprenticeship system in the United States. Um, was that reluctance to deal with the government? Now it can be done locally uh, through a third-party intermediary, and, and we're we're really excited about that. And uh, we're also excited about as part of our contract, uh, we have $500,000 of incentive money to help offset the costs for companies to uh, begin new apprenticeship programs or expand existing programs. So that's uh, part of a, a $90 million uh, uh, appropriation that that. Uh, uh, Congress appropriated to the Department of Labor, which was new money. Uh, and if you think about what happened in this last Congress, there wasn't a whole lot of bipartisan support for anything, especially around Department of Labor issues. But there, there was bipartisan support to uh, expand apprenticeship opportunities. So we're, we're really excited about that because it, it, it means jobs and opportunity for an awful lot of young people to get their foot in the door in a career in advanced manufacturing, and yeah, goodness knows we need we need more young people uh, coming down that path. Uh, Jim, how do you feel about? Uh, and I think you and I spoke about this. Uh, how do you feel about the German educational system, uh, where they have uh, a five-day educational program, three days of which is uh, liberal arts, and the other two days is uh, of vocational nature, so that the students can get a smattering of both opportunities, one working with your hands and the other working with the brain, which seems to be working very well for the Germans. Uh, and actually, I think this is a new version of the German apprenticeship program. How do, how do you or your people feel about that as a potential um, program that could be implemented into this country? Before you answer that, I'm going to voice my opinion. I don't think it ever could happen here. That said, what's your thoughts? <laughs> well, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that either the German or the Swiss system, we can't just take that system and implement it in the United States. It, it would never work. But what what we can do is take some good parts of that system that work very well there, modify them a little bit, and, and come up with a solution that works in America. And and uh, having that uh, dual uh, program that includes both you know traditional academic education and hands-on education can work and and is working in in many places around the country. There are some. Um, and these are relatively new efforts that have happened in the last uh, year to 18 months where the, whole, the term youth apprenticeship programs is, is coming back around. And, and I can give an example of, of the state of Colorado where the governor in Colorado has gotten behind apprenticeship and recognized that that, that type of, of program that they run in, in Europe has some real advantages and, and they're working uh, with industry associations across Colorado 
uh, with the goal of, of next year having between 25 and 30,000 young people in high school in uh, youth apprenticeship programs, which would be uh, a, a U.S. version of the German system where they're going to school uh, part-time and going to work part-time uh, with, with local employers in a whole host of, of different occupations. So. Uh, we're excited about that. Um, nationally, uh, the Department of Labor also is, is working on some national guidelines for, for youth apprenticeship, um, which are coming out soon. So um, I think, you know, the timing is right and there's an opportunity to uh, reinvent career and technical education in the United States. You know, we had great programs in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and then for a number of reasons uh, we, we got away from it. and, and, and uh, it seems like our whole country was pushing everyone in in high school to enter a four-year baccalaureate degree program, and and now you know we're we're, we're looking at the the college debt issue, and and an awful lot of people around the country, both in government and in the private sector, are recognizing that it's it's way past time that we in, reinvent career and technical education and give young people opportunities that are directly in alignment with what our economy needs so that they can grow and prosper. And, uh, the, you know, the four-year baccalaureate degree is not a, necessarily a bad thing, but it, it certainly shouldn't be the only path that we advocate uh, nationally. Uh, Tim and I have been doing manufacturing talk radio now for just over three years, and uh, we certainly have learned a lot in terms of uh, – what's going on in the country in terms of uh, skill sets and loss of jobs and so on and so forth. And one of the things that keep coming to the surface, and I don't think we've mentioned it yet here, is that the families, the parents, are, I think, the ones that are greatly responsible for pushing and guiding their children into a uh, college degree in a college environment, uh, not necessarily recognizing that maybe their child is more of a hands-on uh, individual than a, uh, a academic individual, and that there's nothing really wrong with that. Uh, matter of fact, uh, Tim and I went to NJMEP during Manufacturing Day, uh, this most recent one in October beginning of October, I think it was 7th, and we interviewed, and we have it on um, mfgtalkradio.com, we have eight students, six of them in high school and two of them in junior high school, who have, even at their young age of junior high school, uh, really got turned on by the idea of making things and really not being necessarily all that involved in the academics. And these kids were incredibly bright. I mean, incredibly bright. Bright. Actually, there was one or two uh, of the uh, senior uh, kids that it was hard to understand what they were talking about because they were really into it, they really got into it, and they really liked what they were doing. So our feeling is that maybe there's a little bit too much pressure from the family to be, you know, the first college grad in the family instead of doing what will give them the best uh, rewards for their efforts. Uh, any thoughts on that? Well, I think, you know, one thing we, 
from from a NIMS perspective, we recognize that that having that college degree is, is sort of part of the American dream, and and we have to recognize that. And I think some of the mistakes we make as an industry is saying, you know, well, come work for us. Don't worry about getting a degree. And, and we we advocate that we need to create career paths that include a pathway to a degree as well as, you know, skilled trades and a good job. And so when we're working with companies and other organizations on developing some of these new apprenticeship programs, we, we always focus on also trying to have them articulate that apprenticeship program with at least an associate's degree so that mm -hmm. there is a, a degree path in it because that's what what mom and dad and, and grandmom and grandpop, you know, want to see for, for their family. And, and, and we have to recognize that and build it into the career paths in our industry. And, and we also have to encourage companies to open their doors. Um, you know, the, the general public just has no idea what advanced manufacturing looks like, what the skill set of the, of the workers is, what people actually do. And, and all they, they have this mental picture of, you know, the, the factory of the dark ages where, you know, it was, it was an awful place to work and, and monotonous and, you know, all the negative things. And, and, you know, so manufacturing day is a fantastic opportunity, uh, but uh, companies have to do more than just one day a year. You know, we have to find ways to uh, let people see what our work environment is and, and really uh, expose young people to the opportunities that exist and light that fire and, and, uh, um, you know, we can't expect people across the country just to jump into a career path in advanced manufacturing when they, they don't have any idea. They don't see it. They don't, they don't know what it's like, and they don't know that it's in their own community. Uh, so the, the more we can do as an industry across the country to uh, open our doors and, 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 and uh, let young people see and, 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 and uh, talk with folks in, in our environment, uh, the, the better off we're going to be. So Tim and I, with Manufacturing Talk Radio, when we started this uh, three years ago, that was one of our goals, was to be able to uh, promote information out to the general population manufacturing population about things that they may not know about things that they're you know they're so involved with their day-to-day -day business operations and then all of a sudden wake up one day that they just had three people that turned in their retirement papers and they have no one to replace them so how uh, aside from a, a company like ourselves who's putting out information to the general manufacturing world how are you or how should organizations like NAM and uh, Institute of Supply Management, aside from just having programs, how do you get the message out, aside from coming on to our show, how do you get the message out so that a wider uh, population scope can understand and say, oh, there really are solutions to this? You're not going to see it on CBS, NBC, CNN, Bloomberg, and so on and so forth. How do you get the message out? How are other orgs supposed to get the message out to reach a wider band of uh, organizations and people? Well, you know, we we do continually try to develop um, tools that that programs and organizations that are that are using NIM standards and credentials can also use to in their recruiting efforts to to get people into their programs. Um, uh, we. We are uh, 
just now in, in the midst of, of launching a development program to develop a series of tools uh, that will be designed to, to uh, reach uh, separating military personnel. Uh, the military is downsizing significantly, and you know, so we're developing some, some tools and, and videos and things that really would have vets talking to vets about the opportunities in advanced manufacturing and 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 the career passes there and 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 how to go about getting the training that they might need locally to to get into the transition from their career in the military to to advanced manufacturing. We also work with groups um like uh, the Gene Haas Foundation and, and other organizations that are really doing uh, outreach as well. But it, it's not easy. It takes all of us. And what we really have to do is get even the small companies all around the country to get involved. And, and they can't just sit back and wait for you know a skilled worker to drop on their doorstep. It, it really does take uh, everyone being involved and, and doing uh, as much as we can um, when we can to, to get the word out. And, and uh, from a national perspective, it's very difficult. At, but you know what what really has an impact is is individual manufacturers in specific communities uh, getting involved, working with schools. Uh, opening their facilities for tours and job shadowing activities and, and, and those kinds of things that, yeah, take a little bit of time, but but the payback can be immense. And it and if it, you just get a couple of manufacturers in a community to get together and start doing that, they can have a tremendous impact on on their local community. Let me give you just a little insight into something that uh, Tim and I experienced. The first year that we did a manufacturing. Uh, day. Uh, we've done it now uh, three times. And the first time we did it, we tried to uh, appeal to one of the local high schools to take some of the uh, selective students to an event at NJMEP, which was on, held on Manufacturing Day. And I spoke with the uh, principal of the school, told them who we are, what we are, what we're trying to do, and the answer was, no, I don't think so, because we're really an academic school. And completely shut me off, shut it down. We did then go to one of the local vocational high schools, and we wound up taking 15 high school students to the event, and they were really terrific. The point is that uh, the... The view is, in many cases, is that uh, manufacturing is still dark, dirty, and dangerous. And it's not uh, – I think that we need a broader base of information going out to uh, the, the, the general populace. Uh, for example, uh, near our facility that we have a highway that has these electronic billboards, you know, the, the newest right. and greatest and latest of uh, uh, advertising. And um, one of the signs that pops up is, learn how to be a plumber in eight months. <laughs> and it has all kinds of advertising about that. And then it, it'll change and it'll say, become a welder in nine months and earn $80,000 a year. Um, that's the kind of general advertising, general marketing, the idea. Uh, I think going through the orgs, as you mentioned, and getting them involved in schools are fine, but I think you need a, a, a general display to the general public that these opportunities are out there. 
and uh, for a matter of fact, of the eight students that we interviewed at uh, uh, Manufacturing Day this most recent year, one of the questions I asked each and every one of them, and I said to them, how did your parents feel when you told them that you wanted to go into manufacturing and you wanted to build things? And every one of them categorically said, no problem. Now, some of them were uh, not born here. Some were foreigners, and their parents were thrilled because, you know, a blacksmith in uh, Afghanistan doesn't make the same kind of money that a, a forging assistant might make here in the United States. But their parents were very enthusiastic about giving their children a different uh, mindset as to what kind of career to go into. So um, I don't have the answer. Uh, Tim and I have the answer that we were doing manufacturing talk radio to get it out to the general public. But um, television is uh, certainly the, the widest uh, marketing venue that there is. And you never see anything except uh, drugs and how it's going to kill you. Well, I, I, I agree. But, but also I think um, – you know, I, I certainly see attitudes changing um, around the country, and and you know, more and more mainstream media has been uh, really focusing on on the college debt issue, uh, right? And people right. are recognizing, and and I think you know, more and more average Americans are recognizing that you you really have to take a second look at at borrowing huge amounts of money uh, without looking at the outcomes on the on the other side, and. Uh, um, more and more uh, people, especially after the last recession, where, where manufacturing has been been picking up uh, significantly in most places around the country, and people are recognizing increasingly that there are good jobs, and and it it might not be such a bad thing. Uh, but obviously, we still have a, a long way to go to get the message out. But you know, manufacturers also have to really, I think, be more forthcoming and talk about the opportunities. And, and you know, most people don't realize that people with, like, advanced CNC skills and those kind of things can, in, in many places in the country, be well into six-figure incomes. And, and we, just don't, we just don't talk about that. We, we don't uh, – you know, someone once said it's about the economy, stupid. And I think, you know, we really have to uh, make the case – to the American people as often as we can, that, you know, to really tell them about what the, the opportunities are there. And by the same token, we really have to look at, at, at the career paths within our own companies. And, and an awful lot of companies, when I begin talking to them and we look at, you know, what's the starting wage? And, and in many cases, they're really not competitive with, with the competition in other sectors. You know, when, when you, you, I kind of remind them, well, look at what McDonald's is paying down the street. You know, do you, you really think you're going to attract high-caliber young people with, with that, that starting salary? You know, so they, they need to put that into, into perspective. But um, it is uh, – uh, and I think that's, that's one of the advantages of an apprenticeship program because he, he, the employer can – have that progressive wage schedule that's tied to performance and and the young person coming and can say okay here's where i can start today but in in three years or two years or four years uh i can be making a, a lot more money i'll have skills and and be well into a into a career and and i think you know it's incumbent upon us as manufacturers or the manufacturing community 
to really uh, be more forthcoming about the economic opportunities that are available for young people in our, in our industry and 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 uh, you know really be competitive you know last last week we ran a report um, for a talk I was giving and and in, in Actually, it was November 15th was the date of the report. There were 6.4 million job openings posted across the United States. Um, and that really should be a wake-up call to all of us that, you know, it's not just manufacturing, but you mentioned, you know, all those other industries also have shortages and they're also are sharpening their pencil and really looking to recruit. So if we're going to be <clears throat> have a a, a blossoming manufacturing sector, manufacturers have to get uh, expert at uh, attracting and retaining talent uh, within our industry, and uh, um, it, it's a it's a huge task. But if we, if we don't do it, um, we're going to lose the manufacturing sector in, in our economy uh, simply because we don't have the skilled skilled workers. I think the numbers that uh, Tim and I have uh, picked up on and been touting is that. Right now, we've got 700,000 manufacturing jobs open, and if we don't do all the things that we've been talking about here today, that in 10 years from now or less, it's going to be 2.5 million manufacturing okay. jobs that are going to be open. And uh, that's going to make for uh, security issues in this country uh, an issue. You know, it's like in the Second World War, they hired 5 million women to work in the war machine during the uh, uh, build-up to the Second World War. Uh, I mean, I would hate like hell to think that that's what it's going to take to uh, get people into manufacturing. But uh, the bottom line is that uh, I think that everything that you folks are doing and all the rest of the orgs are doing um, it is uh, good stuff. And uh, eventually it's going to get out there and uh, people will understand that these are good career choices. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. And we, and we, we, we're working hard every day to, to help ensure that we, we have uh, those workers for the future. Why don't you give us your URL uh, information so that uh, – some of our listeners who want to hear more about it, read more about what you're doing, right. uh, can do that. Well, you know, first, I'd, I'd, we have a, a, a website we set up around this, the apprenticeship initiatives, which is mfgapprenticeship.com, and, and um, there's information there about the new new initiatives and an opportunity for companies to uh, actually sign up if they want to get more information and get some help. Um, and we're here over over at least over the next year to to focus on providing that support and help companies expand or or begin new apprenticeship programs. Um, and they can also email us at apprenticeship at nims-skills.org, um, and we, we'd be happy to provide as much support as is possible to help them. Uh, get get a program started in their community. Jim, uh, Tim and I really appreciate your being on our show. And uh, if we could be of any help to uh, you and your organization in the future, please feel free to contact us, and we'd be happy to work with you and cooperate with you uh, in the future. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And 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 the the, the same for us. If there's anything we can do uh, to help get the word out with you. We, we greatly appreciate that. So thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you very much, Jim. Take care now. Been okay. Okay. Bye-bye.
We've been speaking with Jim Ball, who's Executive Director for the National Institute of Mental Working Skills. Stay tuned to our show. We have another guest coming up, and we look forward to that conversation very shortly. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. How do you keep your business humming? Where do you go when you're looking for quality suppliers of new equipment, components, MRO supplies, repair services, or even raw materials? 30 years ago, you would have turned to the Thomas Register. Today, those big green books are better than ever at thomasnet.com, industry's leading platform for product sourcing and supplier discovery. You can easily find that local machine shop, national distributor, OEM, or any supplier having the right quality certification. Fast and free. You can even get to specific products, components, or downloadable 3D CAD drawings simply by entering specifications or part numbers. There's a reason thomasnet.com has become the go-to supplier discovery tool for procurement professionals and engineers. There's simply no other resource like it. And it's all free. Go to thomasnet.com today and see how top-notch supplier discovery doesn't have to put a dent into your bottom line. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Many of you have probably heard of Godfrey. It is a nationally ranked business-to-business marketing communications agency. And we are here with Russ Green, who's executive vice president and a partner of that organization, who heads up their uh, client service and business development staff to talk about some of the things that Godfrey does and some of the things that are happening in manufacturing. Russ, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So, Russ, I'm going to let you give our listeners a better overall introduction of what Godfrey is and who you do, uh, or what you do to the companies that you serve. Okay. Uh, thanks. Godfrey is a 100% business-to-business marketing firm, uh, very much focused on manufacturers. I, I think our entire client base is, is manufacturers, um, both in the U.S. and, and globally. Um, we've been around since the 40s. I have not. Um, we've been pretty much focused on B2B since the, the 70s. Uh, I, I got here in 1990, so I'm, I'm, I'm old, but I'm not that old. Um, but our experience base is in areas like automation and controls, uh, construction equipment, chemicals, um, buildings, the build environment, lubricants, metalworking, material handling, those kind of industries. And of course, our clients and therefore ourselves market into dozens of, of vertical industries, food and packaging, semiconductor, you name it. So, I mean, I think our, our number one um, claim is uh, simply that we love communicating about technical products to technical audiences. We've been doing it for a long time. We grew up as an ad agency, as probably most firms did, we added a what's become an extremely strong PR capability in the 80s. Uh, we really got into digital uh, through website development in, oh, about 1993, so we were pretty early on there, um, and we've developed probably hundreds of, of websites since then. Our goal is really to be able to provide 
all the marketing capabilities that an industrial manufacturer would need, you know, whether they choose to use us for all those or not. And that really brings the the comprehensive view of the world that we have, which is, is a lot of what we're going to talk about today. Um, you know, so we, we have developed all the, the latest specialties of social media and search and analytics and, and a whole lot more. Um, and then really over the last couple of years, we've really committed ourselves and, and retooled our approach around trying to lead everything we do with insight uh, into the customer. In this case, we're talking about our client's customer, so, so uh, your, your listeners, customers and prospects, uh, their competitors, uh, the market in general, the issues, the conversations that are going on, really the landscape, um, because marketing and B2B marketing has gotten really so complex, you've probably seen the infographic that shows, I don't know, hundreds or thousands of technology platforms and programs and apps and so forth. And if there's one theme that our, our clients really come to us with, it's what do I do? It's, it's can you simplify this? Uh, or if you can't simplify it, can you at least you know help me figure out what I should be doing uh, to improve my marketing, to drive sales, to increase our market share, whatever it happens to be. Um, one one last thing I guess I want to say too is we're we're really committed to learning every day, but we're also committed to sharing what, what we know. So I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your show uh, and appreciate that you're doing the show because. Uh, I think a lot of information sources, well, that I grew up with in my career in the, in the 80s primarily, have dried up. They've gone away. And so I think it's incumbent on all of us to try to help provide information uh, for marketers to, to do a better job. Uh, question. Uh, we have, aside from having manufacturing talk radio, we also have All Metals and Forge Group, which is a uh, steel forging company, uh, which is really our primary uh, manufacturing interest. Uh, and one of the things that we have found uh, when we started with Manufacturing Talk Radio as a kind of a sidebar to our uh, main uh, point of interest is that there are so many manufacturing companies today, more of the smaller or medium or medium-smaller companies, the ownership of these companies are very much into, you know, making the widgets that they make and retaining a customer for 20, 30, 40 years and, to, you know, earn a living and to grow through that process. But there's a lot of them that really don't know or don't understand uh, manufacturing marketing. And, and, and I'm presuming that that's a good part of your role to help the manufacturer understand what he doesn't understand. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you give us some insight into that? Well, and I think you're you're right on on the button. And uh, uh, you know, I think that every every single company that I've ever dealt with, uh, worked with, or talked to is is different in that regard. In fact, way back, a couple of a couple of decades ago, we actually partnered with um, a trade magazine to to do a little article, and it was in that case it was um, being shown at the Hanover Fair in Germany, and it was kind of coming to America. Um, and the topics in there were very much like what you what you would also expect those small to medium sized manufacturers to be interested in. And I'm kind of talking about the ones when you go to the trade show, 
along the wall there's the 10-foot tabletop booths, um, you know, because that's the first, almost the first thing they're doing. They, they hire some salespeople, they go to some trade shows, uh, it kind of it kind of blossoms from there, and and then people are all over that spectrum from from um, some rudimentary advertising or maybe they do an article here and there um, to they kind of get a get a web presence up, you know, all the way to some some very uh, global um, sophisticated marketing programs. So so we're kind of all over the bat the plate, and 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 what we want to do is try to understand where each manufacturer is and, and help them progress. Um, and and so the main thing that we don't want to do is say everyone needs to be doing X, Y, and Z uh, because A, that's not necessarily true, and B, it's not possible either with the resources, financial or human, um, you know, or, or it's just not going to be right for their business model. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, matter of fact, I'll, I'll just throw a plug out for us, and then I'll let you plug your company. Uh, <laughs> any of your clients that have any interests that have uh, a, a value story to share with manufacturers, we'd be more than happy to talk to you at a later point about the possibility to either come on our show and talk about new technologies or new management styles or uh, you know, run ads on our uh, uh, website or on our show. Uh, we've, uh, in three years, we've had 350,000 downloads of our show. So we are we are making inroads, and we're giving a lot of exposure to those who are on the show as well as ourselves. So I, I suggest that to you as a possibility for futures. That being said, uh, you might want to give your URL address uh, at this point and let our listeners know where you are and how to get in touch. Sure. That'd be great. It's pretty simple. It's it's Godfrey.com, so G-O-D-F-R-E-Y.com. Uh, and, you know, what? well, you, you said I could do a little bit of a commercial. Um, I will say Not when a you problem. get on there, um, you know, take a look around. We've got a very robust blog. Um, and another thing that we'll probably talk about here in a minute is we've actually taken our our overall approach and kind of packaged it into a couple of um, offers that, that address maybe what you were talking about a minute ago, and that is, you know, kind of where do I start? What do I do? Um, you know, I'm small. Can I even kind of afford to, to think comprehensively, or, or what's that all about? So, um, you know, we've we've kind of boiled down the offer into kind of a getting started um, group, the branding group. There's, you know, a lot of the work that we do is because companies are buying and selling each other, and so um, branding comes into play. And by branding, that could just simply mean company identity, your name changed, your, your logo changed, or it could be that you've now become twice the company that you were before, and all of a sudden – you know, your position in the market has changed, and, and what does that do about your your strategy and your messages and so forth? So we have one on branding. We have basically a kind of a generic one on the marketing campaign that tries to run the gamut from product launch to, to major campaign. Um, one on content marketing, because that's kind of a hot topic we'll talk about today, and one on web strategy. And and really, just to give your listeners an idea, you know, we, we try to be able to implement uh, our approach in ways that you know take 
um, you know, a couple of weeks to maybe a month uh, to kind of get going. And, you know, the, the cost range is somewhere maybe in the $15,000 range to 25. I mean, so it's not six figures and six months before you can start seeing some, some real deliverables out on the marketplace. Because, like I said, we came from the execution side. We love to get stuff out of the market that's going to be effective. We just want to make sure that it's kind of kind of aimed correctly first. Well, that certainly makes a lot of sense. You definitely want to aim correctly. Now, I also understand, uh, Rush, that you are, were uh, named to the Worldwide Agency Network Board of Directors. What is that organization? Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks for asking. Worldwide Partners is... Um, actually uh, one of the largest independent networks of agencies, and I, I stress that because if you say, you know, global network of, of ad agencies, people will think of the, the really huge um, monolithic, you know, networks that where they own all the agencies. We actually own the network. We're all shareholders in the network. Um, and so it's a, it's a group of um, about 80 or so agencies, not all B2B. Uh, we actually have a, a B2B uh, Subnetwork, um, the 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 network itself started well back in the day. This thing goes back to the 20s, I think, under some different names. Though uh, it started as a as a consumer uh, network. So there's a strong B2C component. There's a strong B2B component. Um, why we like that is because in a lot of parts of the world and most of the regions where our clients want to market into, B2B is not really a mature practice. Um, and so it's really hard to find, you know, a terrific B2B agency in Asia or Latin America, for example. You know, but there are terrific agencies, some of which um, do B2B and do it quite well, but they're not they're not dedicated like we are. So it, it allows us to tap into um, the other regions to put together either programs using our partners. Uh, or what we really use it a lot for is that initial insight gathering that um, I want to talk about in a minute here, uh, because uh, one of the things, even if even if you if you if you've been marketing in the states for a long time and you kind of feel like you have that nailed, now all of a sudden you're getting into geographic expansion and you're going into different cultures, different regions, different um, ways of doing business, and so it's really helpful to, for us to have feet on the street out there and agency partners that can kind of do some digging, do some research, do some customer insight to, again, help us try to be a little bit more on target when we come out of the gates in these new regions. How many uh, agencies do you have around the U.S. or North America? In the network, um, I would yeah. say it's about probably half of the total, so somewhere in the area of 50, uh, 40 probably. And mm -hmm. I do not have that you know, right at hand, but close to that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, and, you know, Europe, Europe is is um, probably the the second most prevalent, and then all like I said, all the regions that all of the U.S. marketers are trying to get into are the ones that we're focusing very heavily on uh, bringing partners on board. I wasn't aware Russ, that finding a good B two B firm in Asia would actually be a challenge. I find that a, a curious statement. Can you elaborate on it a little bit? Well, in terms of a 100% dedicated B2B agency, um, and, of course, you know, I guess the other thing um, that we all learn the hard way is 
um, that there is no market called Asia. That that's a handy reference for us marketers here in the states. But there's China, there's Korea, there's Japan, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so it's really about finding good agencies in each of those countries. We have a terrific partner in China. Uh, they do a lot of B2B, um, and, and like I said, they're just absolutely terrific. They've been on the board. They've been around a good long time. But they are probably 80% B2C in, in what they do across China. Hmm, interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, there's that uh, a great opportunity in front of them since China is trying to convert their economy to a consumer-based economy. That is an interesting challenge for them. Right. Um, in terms of manufacturing specifically, Ross, mm-hmm. can you give us uh, some examples or our listeners some examples on what you've done? And I'm particularly interested not just in the, the – uh, the major OEM manufacturers, but also that small and middle market, uh, which comprises about 99% of all manufacturing. But often they're probably sitting at their desk thinking, can't afford it, uh, don't have the resources internally to follow it through. What are some of the success stories you've had in that group? Mm-hmm. Well, I think you know you said this earlier, um, and it and it really is it rings true that. Pretty much all of our clients and, and these kind of manufacturers, they all come to life around a great product and maybe a product line. You know, um, a lot of them are engineering driven. You know, they started because somebody invented this product, so mm-hmm. they've really grown up around this product. Their sales force has grown up around selling this product. Their marketing has grown up around about, around selling communicating about the features and benefits of this product. So so there's a lot of po- folks that have done quite well doing that. Um, I, I think the, the, the thing to me that is the biggest overall trend in marketing today that we try to share and then help people deal with is, depending on the industry you're talking about, way over half, like 50 to 80% of a buyer's what we call journey to a purchase happens before the buyer ever reaches out to the sales force. So we're talking about you know the old ADA model, awareness, interest, desire, action. There's different names you can call the different steps, but from not knowing anything about your product in your company to buying your product from your company, that's a journey. And it used to be that Marketing kind of got that journey started. We we did some things, uh, advertising, PR, maybe on the website where we we kind of broke through and we got someone's awareness. We created awareness. We maybe generated a little action. Um, send me more information. You know the old bingo cards in the magazines, or now going online, filling out the contact us form, that kind of thing. At that point. Marketing was feeling pretty good about ourselves. We said, wow, we generated a lead. Here you go, Salesforce. Here's a lead. Um, And the Salesforce took it from there. And sometimes that could take days, sometimes months, sometimes, you know, in in heavy uh, capital equipment industries, it could take a year or more to convert that, that lead into a customer. So what's happened now is that the customer hasn't even raised their hand yet. They have not let themselves be known as as an interested party. And so 
there's so much more that needs to happen in what we call marketing because marketing tends to kind of own the website and the other communication channels. So there's a lot more that marketing um, has the opportunity to do and actually has the responsibility to do because the customer is not going not gonna to make himself known until much later in the process. So we, we use that fact and, and that research to talk to the, the smaller and medium-sized marketers to say, here's, here's an opportunity because not everyone's doing a really great job out there to find those prospects and those, those searchers that are looking around for something that will bring them to your product. Everyone seems to probably do a pretty good job once somebody already knows they want a product and now they're just going to compare manufacturers. So websites have tend to grown up, grow up around features and benefits and specs and how to buy and so forth. But we're kind of talking about, um, let's say, for example, you make this great pump, hydraulic pump, and um, maybe it helps address a problem, I don't know, vibration. So let's say vibration. So, okay. So if someone's looking for a pump and a hydraulic pump, there's a good chance they'll probably find you if you're doing a good website and have some good search uh, optimization going on. If they're trying to solve a problem about vibration in hydraulics, they might find you because you probably have some language around that. But if they're early on and they're just kind of getting their head around the idea that I've got some vibration issues in my system and they're not, you know, entering all the magic words that'll get them to you, um, you know, they may not find you and, and you may not make their selection set because of that. So there's a huge opportunity to build content and place it, you know, in the right places so that you can start to uh, engage with those people and, and build, you know, a, a nurturing kind of a, a process with them that will help move them down that journey to where the sales force can, can take over at some point and, and close the deal. Uh, uh, Russ, uh, we've been uh, doing this ourselves now since 1992, and I'll never forget when uh, Tim and I created our first website and we got our first inquiry. We were so excited. We were, 1992, we're jumping out of our drawers, and it was just an incredible experience. Uh, today we get uh, approximately 45,000 visitors a month uh, to all metals and forge groups. So, uh, and that's that's been the 20-year or 22-year or 24-year uh, journey, as you put it. So mm-hmm. we 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 understand what needs to be done today. However, you don't wait. You don't have to wait 20 years to make that journey. Uh, with companies such as yourself to help people along, uh, it just needs a, a couple of couple of dollars and a couple of months, and you can be up and running and uh, driving traffic to your uh, to your business. So um, I, I, I appreciate your uh, being on our show and. Uh, giving us this information. And one last time, I'm going to ask you to give us your URL address for those who are late coming into the show so that they know where to find you. And, uh, again, thank you for being on the show. Well, thanks so much for having us. Again, it's uh, godfrey.com, G-O-D-F-R-E-Y. And uh, 
we look forward to any questions you have to and uh, just getting a dialogue started in, in any way that we can try to help. Well, thanks very much, Russ, for being with us. We've been talking with Russ Green, who's with uh, Godfrey, and we encourage our listeners to go to uh, godfrey.com and learn a little something more about the organization and what they can do for you, because it just turns out that big agency presence and ability doesn't necessarily mean a big expense for your company in order to get the benefits. So thanks for listening. That uh, takes us to the end of our Manufacturing Talk radio show for this week. We look forward to you coming to our website. All of our shows are stored in a library there, so you can look through them at mfgtalkradio.com. They're also up on iTunes if that happens to be the way that you get to what you want to listen to in terms of a podcast or listen at your convenience. And we'll be back with you next week at mfgtalkradio.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.